0: Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rocket MSP Podcast. I'm Steve Taylor, your host. Today, I'm joined by Ken Dwight, the virus doctor. Ken, how you doing, sir?
1: Great, Steve, how are you?
0: Oh, what am I hearing? I just started getting myself in my ear. That's because I had the YouTube page open from earlier when I was sending it out to a few people. Fixed. <laughs> I didn't hear it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I was just coming through my my headphones because it was on my computer. So, uh, Ken, we're going to talk about something a little different for me today. Um, so, I like to focus on, you know, managed services, automation, efficiency, um, doing, uh, getting paid as much as I as I can for as little work as possible, right? Um, and. And you're all about, like, virus remediation. This is this is very confusing for me because what I would do is, uh, oh, hi, Mr. Customer, you got a virus? No problem. Uh, new image fixed.
1: <laughs> why, why not? There are times that that could be an appropriate response, but in my experience, uh, it, it mostly a, is not necessary, and B, could create a lot of additional problems, uh, some of which might be unrecoverable, especially in the case of a, a small business or a home user that doesn't have all their stuff backed up. They may have some applications they couldn't reinstall or the written custom and the person that wrote them isn't around anymore. It, just, it opens a whole can of worms if, if you start off with, in, a, in effect, a new computer out of the box. So... Uh, And I say, it's it's rarely necessary in my experience, but it's like so many other things. There's not an absolute black and white. There are times that wiping and, and reloading would make sense. In my opinion and experience, that's typically the large organizations that have regularly maintained image backups of the whole system. But if you're talking about going back to what a computer looked like when it first came out of the box getting all the updates, reinstalling all the applications and all the settings, for the data and the folders and on and on and on and on. Uh, that's a good way to burn hours and hours and hours you can never bill for and lead to other problems along the way, and the client will never speak to you again.
0: Got it. Okay, so um, I, I think that what you're saying is true. There, there are some things that are on these computers that – you can't just walk up and you know reimage it and walk away and everyone's happy because you're right. That's that's not a that's not a win win. That's win lose at best, right? You know the customer's unhappy, but maybe I got paid, right? So, um, once, I, yeah, once and then never again. So, why couldn't I just um, kind of take inventory of what's on the computer? Run a fabs auto backup and then run an image.
1: That's fine for the data and the settings, but what about the programs? Fabs doesn't do
0: the programs. It doesn't, but so so you got to think though, this is you know this is rocket MSP, right? so we're we're here talking about managed service providers. and managed service providers um, typically aren't supporting, end users like consumers you know they don't want to fix grandma's computer they want to fix the ceo's computer or the engineer on the floor's computer Um, those computers typically are running software that we have already kind of you know surveyed scoped out um have a have a decent understanding of or at least know how to reinstall it if if one of our clients, one of our end users has like custom software on the computer, we should know about that. And we should know how to basically get that back on. If this is software that, um, you know, they, they're they not in business anymore, or it was custom written by one of those like access database pros and, and, and maybe they retired or got hit by a bus or whatever, right? Um, wouldn't we, the MSP, have gone in, taken them on as a client with a stipulation of, look, you know, we're going to provide best effort service on uh, this software, and you need to know that we need to replace that because reasons.
1: Well, and, and I don't argue with that. As you know, there are a wide range of MSP requirements, qualifications, capabilities, uh, business sense, uh, ethics. And and so uh, all MSPs are not created equal. And I agree with you that if you have, in fact, as the MSP, done all that up front and you have probably if you've been that diligent, you do have some type of backup procedure that does involve a full image backup on some scheduled basis, whether it's weekly or monthly or, or something that wiping and reloading would be a good viable option there. Uh, I think what it comes down to is uh, in the, the large organizations, you're going to have something like that. But in the smaller organizations or an MSP that is not what you and I would think of as being qualified to do what they're doing, uh, you... you run the risk of creating new problems. And I come back to what I said in the first place. It's really not necessary with a proper understanding of uh, how to clean up malware, to detect it, get rid of it, keep it from coming back. Uh, that's a win-win for everybody. For mm-hmm. one thing, you, you get it done in a reasonable amount of time. Now, when I say reasonable amount, uh, my, my guarantee for people to take my workshop is two hours or less of the actual number is usually less than an hour. 40 to 50 minutes is kind of the average uh, for a complete malware cleanup, removal, keep it from coming back type situation. And uh, uh, as you know, if you're doing it the old fashioned way, which is either wiping and reloading or running a bunch of scans, it's another real common technique that uh, a lot of less educated techs think they've They've got it. Well, I'll do a scan with this and this and this and this, and before you know it, you spent six or eight or ten hours scanning, and yeah, might have found something, might have gotten rid of it, at least got rid of the appearance of it. Uh, but good luck in billing for that. So, and granted, that's usually running on some machines while the tech's off doing something else. So it's not like like they're they're tied to the keyboard for that six or eight or ten or twelve hours, or whatever it takes. But the client is out the use of that computer for. That time, whether it's, you know, it's certainly going to be measured in, in hours, if not days. So, uh, again, it's not really necessary with the proper understanding of the kind of how these things work, what to look for, how to get rid of it, keep it from coming back. One okay. other thing that so, I'll, I'll just mention here, and kind of uh, in the way of introductory remarks, uh, as you know, the you know, a lot of MSPs out there. That is their billing model, but not their service model. They're not really managing anything. They're billing monthly and getting paid, but not really doing much in the way of of proactive, preventive maintenance and monitoring and and that sort of thing. And uh, so it gets back to the basic qualifications and the integrity of a particular MSP. And so a lot of what I'm saying doesn't apply to the ones that, that you and I would consider to be qualified, legitimate MSPs doing what their client expects them to do, but unfortunately, there are that that doesn't describe all of them.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that that process that you that you say we should understand. Now, I I know you've got this um, virus remediation training course, and that probably takes days to go through, not just you know an hour or two. So this is going to just kind of touch on some topics and not really dive too deep. I I understand that. I think they understand that. Um, So like, what does the process look like? 10,000 foot overview bullet points. Okay. Great question. Uh,
1: First of all, uh, it was called the virus remediation training workshop for quite a few years. I actually first did it in 2009. So it's, it's been 12 years now that I've been doing these workshops. And I was never that thrilled about the name. And, you know, people, well, I haven't seen a real virus in a long time. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a techie thing to poo-poo the term viruses. But it's something that uh, the general public understands. And, and so I'm, I'm known as the virus doctor. So I've, I've kept it in the name for a long time. But I've said all along, if you could think of a better name for this class, let me know. And, in fact, last year, in fact, January 1st of uh, 2020, I did change the name of the training. It's now the Malware Incident Response Training Workshop. So. That's sharp. Well, thank you. That's kind of it's a term that I was hearing more and more instant response. And that is what we're all about. It's 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 not uh, theoretical pie in the sky. What if how to whatever it's you've got an infected machine. Now what? So in other words, my workshop basically starts at an infection or compromise has happened. How do you deal with it? So. In the workshop itself, most of what it's about is the methodology. And the methodology involves identifying uh, the, the type of, of malware that you're faced with. And again, a lot of what I say and, and terms I use are not you know, things that I'll take credit for inventing or being the only one that says them or, or does them, But but it's in a form that I think makes sense and works. And so overall, in terms of malware, I talk about four categories of malware. And I address them in the sequence that you need to to look at them, look for them, get rid of them. Uh, first being encrypting ransomware. If you have a case of encrypting ransomware, you're going to know it. the client's going to know if they've got the messages on the screen, they can't access their data files, they know there's an issue. So that's what you have to deal with first. And once you've gotten past that, uh, there could very well be other malware that doesn't happen to be ransomware. Either it came along with it or it was there all along and the client or the user didn't know it or whatever. And so there's three remaining categories beyond ransomware. The next one being pups or rogues. And as you know, these are programs that are just trying to get the user to buy something they don't need, whether it's a, a fake antivirus warning or fake hardware alert or stuff like that. Uh, But what those two categories, the ransomware and the pups or rogues, have in common is they're obvious, they're visible. The user knows there's something there that they need to do something about. Uh, But then you get to the third category, which is traditional malware. Traditional malware, viruses, worms, Trojans, uh, in most cases, are sophisticated enough that they go to a great extent to keep the user from knowing that their computer is infected. Or even keep the average tech from knowing. Because as you know, when that malware is on that machine, the person behind it is making money. The longer it stays on that machine, the more money they're making. If they do something stupid that makes it obvious the machine's infected, then the client or the user is going to call you. They're going to get rid of it. Then the gravy train stops. So uh, they put a lot of effort into keeping the malware invisible, or at least not visible unless you know exactly what to look for and where it is and what to do about it. So in the overall methodology that I teach, uh, that's the, the area that you typically spend the most time in because you have to make the basic determination, is there uh, a traditional piece of malware involved? And then deal with it and get rid of it and keep it from coming back. The fourth category is less prevalent now than it was for a good while, but it's still a factor and, and you still see it fairly often, is rootkits. Uh, rootkits are, as you know, deeply buried in the operating system itself. So they're even tougher to identify and get rid of in a lot of cases than traditional malware. So point is, in the methodology, and I talk about each one of those, step at a time, what to look for, uh, and a step-by-step procedure. So a lot of this involves what's known as indicators of compromise or IOC. I also refer to those as the hiding places as to uh, how the malware starts or how it maintains p- persistence. You hear the term APT, advanced persistent threat. And that just implies that if the user just shuts down and restarts, then it'll come back. It's not going to go away from a simple reboot like that. And so uh, there's so many factors that come into play. And you need to be able to understand kind of how the stuff works. Now, when I say that, The workshop is not, let me just address one other thing so that uh, we'll put some numbers on on what you said initially. The workshop itself is eight hours of hands-on training. And that's normally structured in two half-day sessions. I do four hours one day and four hours the the next day. And that's either uh, in-person or remote. Uh, So with that, uh, I used to do it all in one day. In fact, over the 12 years now that I've been doing it, the course has evolved so much. A lot has been added. Some things have been taken out. Uh, when I first started, it was just about Windows XP. And, uh, of course, that was a long time ago. And there is still some residual XP stuff in the workbook, and in the materials, but most of it is just there for historical reference or just in case you still have that one-off uh, user that, that has an XP machine or whatever. But... Uh, the point is there's so much that changes, but so much of it has, has stayed the same. So in the overall workshop, and that uh, it's broken down into four sections. The first section is the introduction. I spend about an hour just kind of laying the groundwork, talking about how malware has evolved over the years and some of the terminology and just general stuff to kind of set the stage and lead into what we're going to talk about from there. After that, I was going right into the methodology, the step-by-step procedures to identify and and get rid of the malware. But then I realized that to understand that and do it effectively really requires a pretty good understanding of the registry. Now, all of us are techs. We've been in a registry. We know what it's all about generally. And my experience with most techs is their knowledge and understanding of the registry is based on, well, I had a problem, did a Google search, it said to go to the registry and change this key, and they did it. So then they consider themselves a registry expert. Well, that's okay when somebody gives you a cookbook formula, but as you know, most of this we're doing on the fly. You look for something and respond to it, and it goes from, from one step to another. So it really requires a deeper level of understanding of the registry than what most texts, even pretty advanced techs have. So as a result of that, what I've done in a workshop is the second session is just about the registry. And that runs about two and a half hours. So uh, before we even get into the methodology, I want to make sure that everybody has a good enough understanding of the registry to be able to to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about these different registry keys and the types, the data types, and the things to look for and and that sort of thing. Because as you know, there are millions of entries in the registry. And so I'm not going to explain every one of them. I don't know what 99% of them are, uh, but I do know the ones that are most likely to be related to malware and what you need to know about them and do with them and that sort of thing. So in uh, once that, that understanding of the registry is established, then we get into the actual methodology. And that part is another three, three and a half hours or so. Then the fourth session is the lab session where I demonstrate some tools. Now, when I talk about tools, I'm not talking about the scanning tools, generally. Uh, Again, the workshop is not about running a bunch of scans. Uh, That's a a good way to spend a lot of time you can't bill for and may or may not be effective. As you know, there's no one scanning tool or combination of scanning tools that are going to find and remove all the malware that's out there. In some cases, they'll remove the symptoms, but the next time the user reboots or does something else, it comes right back, and then you've really got egg on your face. So in the methodology, which is usually on the second day, I usually get into about the first half hour of the methodology on that first day and and kind of get through the the overall ransomware discussion Then I have a recorded session on ransomware that I encourage them to watch between now and, and the second day. And that's a recording of a presentation I made called Anatomy of a Ransomware Attack. And it talks about you know, the average user looks at their screen and they have this message about your files are encrypted, they can't get their data, and they think that just happened. Well, in fact, ransomware has happened over some period of time at least a few hours, more likely days, weeks, or even months. And so The more the tech understands about how that whole ransomware attack unfolds and what all has happened before the user ever sees any indication, or there's ever any ransom demand or any inability to access the data files, then there is a definite window in there that gives the tech a good opportunity to, to catch that ransomware and get rid of it before it encrypts any data files. So... Uh, that's the type of stuff that's covered. In fact, in that, that video, I talk about 13 stages of the ransomware attack, and only the last couple of stages are the actual encryption and displaying the, the message on the screen. So that's about where we get to in the, in the first day of, of the workshop. We pick up the next day, uh, about 21 hour, 20 hours later, uh, hopefully that has had a chance to... Uh, to percolate in their minds a little bit and bring up some questions that they thought of right after we disconnected or in the shower the next morning or whatever. And so the second day we jump right back into the methodology and and go from the the ransomware into the rogues and pups, which is usually a pretty short discussion because those are less common and less sophisticated now than they were a few years ago. And so that's the easiest of the four categories to deal with. Then I'll spend a good bit of time on traditional malware, uh, viruses, worms, and Trojan horses. And most of that is about the infection vectors, the indicators of compromise, things they can look for, uh, mostly in the registry. And so we actually talk about hundreds, uh, literally something over 300 registry keys that I have personally seen used as infection vectors, and uh, how to quickly go through those and, and Kind of the low hanging fruit where you're most likely to find the different types of of things hanging out and what to do about them. And the fourth session is scheduled for about an hour, but actually, section three and four during the actual methodology, we kind of morph into some of the tools and techniques and and, uh, demos, that sort of thing. But overall, it's a full eight hours over two days live, plus uh, about another total six or eight hours of recorded, including the uh, the ransomware video and some others that if they don't really need to hear live, uh, they're, they can do more uh, at, at their convenience or go back and watch them again whenever they want to.
0: So you mentioned that there's like 300 registry keys that you've personally seen uh, used as an entrance. Um, we should be adding an alert into our RMM tools that lets us know of any changes in these keys. And there are
1: some products out there that will do that, uh, including one that was developed specifically for me that's only available to graduates of the workshop. Uh, I've actually uh, have a database of those common uh, indicators of compromise, registry keys that are used by malware. And uh, this one tool that they can run in about two minutes checks all of those. And so, uh, it's not really a malware scanning tool. There's no scanning. It's look at this registry key, this registry key. This is what should be in there. This is what to do if it's not. And and so that's one of the things that comes with the training is, is my tool set. Got yes. Uh, in fact, I just literally about an hour ago, I, I had a, a Zoom meeting with Huntress. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Huntress. One of the the pieces they include in their product is what they call the ransomware canaries. And uh, that's looking for an early indication. Now uh, in that conversation, just literally an hour ago, I did get some clarification on something I had assumed and I was mistaken about. The ransomware canary is only triggered once the encryption starts. So, uh, and the good news is the way they've done it, it's the ransomware canaries are designed to be, some of the first files that are encrypted. Uh, so at that point, they can at least theoretically shut down the encryption process and, and uh, have minimal damage, but there are about another 10 steps before that where the ransomware is on the machine and active. It just hasn't gotten that far. So there are other tools that could look for some of those IOCs at that point and say, "Ha, ah, this shouldn't be here. And whether that's, uh, by triggering an alert on a particular key that was changed or some daily or hourly or some scheduled check, not with a scanning an anti-malware type program, but more uh, a program that looks specifically for those registry keys that are commonly compromised. Then there are uh, plenty of opportunities to detect that and shut it down before it does any real damage. But there again, it requires an understanding of how this stuff works. Now, having said that, let me just clarify my workshop, is not about prevention. Uh, I'm not poo-pooing prevention, uh, but I'm saying the starting point is you have an infected machine, now what? And so by definition, prevention, you're too late. Uh, But in going through the workshop and seeing how all this stuff happens, then that better prepares the tech to know what kind of preventive measures to take. Uh, Things like what a huge infection factor RDP has been. Uh, the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of different tools out there in terms of anti-malware products. And you know, there are hundreds of them. And and of course each one. So if you use our tool, you don't need anything else. And we all know that's not accurate. Let's let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah,
0: I, I think they all say that. And um, n- none of them are telling the truth, except maybe tools like ThreatLock or where uh, it doesn't trust anything, and it's it's a whitelisting app, and you have to approve the use of an application to run.
1: Yeah, yeah, and whitelisting is an approach that that uh, uh, has some real benefits. The big downside to whitelisting has been it doesn't scale well. Uh, so if you're talking about a, a single user and a PC Matic, uh, then yeah, once they've approved certain things that the PC Matic didn't know about by default, uh, then they're okay. if you're talking about an MSP client with hundreds of desktops uh, and different departments doing different things with different programs, uh, traditionally, a whitelisting approach uh, turns into uh, more of a hassle with the the false positives or whitelisting legitimate programs. And there's ThreatLocker and WhiteCloud are are a couple of similar products in terms of making the whitelisting more scalable. And I frankly don't have firsthand experience with either of them. And so I don't know all the details, but I know that uh, uh, the concept of whitelisting uh, certainly has some value. Uh, it, it, In my experience, has fallen down in practice. But in fact, uh, some, somebody, I forget where I saw it, just in the past few days, somebody posted somewhere that if the Colonial Pipeline had been running PC-Matic, this problem they're having wouldn't have happened, which is probably accurate. You know, of course, generally speaking, when, when any organization has been hit by ransomware, if they were doing everything they should have been doing and knew how to be doing and the MSP had suggested they do or encouraged them, uh, most of these wouldn't have happened in the first
0: place. All right. So let's talk about how, how do we know other than... I'm trying to figure out the right way to word this. So if we've got our antivirus and it says it found a virus and it quarantined it, cleaned it, got rid of it, whatever. In your opinion, we don't even need to go through your steps because the software did its job and it prevented the situation, correct? No.
1: Um, In my opinion, that's when you really need to go through my steps. Uh, because there has has been a piece of malware that was so poorly written and so uh, so trivial that the anti-malware product picked up on it. And uh, most of the significant malware and ransomware we see these days, these these people are they're making big bucks. And before a piece of malware even goes out there these days, from what I would consider a serious malware organization, They have run it through all the anti-malware programs. There are services out there that will say, send us your malware and we'll put it through the different anti-malware programs and see which ones catch it, which ones don't, and how they caught it and what you can do to keep it from being caught next time. So that can't be true. That is absolutely true. I'm surprised you're not aware of that.
0: I'm not, to be honest. I didn't think about that. I don't go looking around what uh, what all's available on the dark web. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't I haven't had any interesting conversations with uh, too many security vendors lately about this type of stuff. I'd I'd love to get like Huntress and Sophos and and all these other guys on here so we can just talk about what what are they seeing happening in, in today's security landscape and all that stuff um i just you know they're on the they're on the to-do list they're on my hit list if you will <laughs> of of vendors i still need to reach out to um all right so if if our virus antivirus or nmwr endpoint management whatever if it detects something then we really need to go through your steps yeah if it doesn't detect something, how do we know that there's a virus then? How do we know we need to go through your steps?
1: That's what I talk about in the workshop. Uh, uh, the fact that, uh, again, of the four categories, encrypting ransomware and the pups and rogues, the user's going to know, you're going to know that that's not, uh, not an issue. But when you get to the traditional malware, uh, the first step in there is make that determination, is there malware present? And so that's a good bit of what we talked about in the early part of that session three of the workshop is making that determination what to look for, how to know, uh, and some tools you can use. Uh, Process Explorer has, and some of this is not very well known. And there again, some of the things I talk about in the workshop, it, I'll put it this way anybody that goes through this workshop is going to know a lot of what I present in there because uh, it's again, some of the stuff hasn't changed in all these years. And, and somebody's been doing it for a while. Uh, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I know that. But then if they listen carefully, they're going to hear a twist on it they haven't thought about or haven't seen before. And in some cases, that's something I discovered on my own. In some cases, it's something I saw in a hunter's webinar or in talking to another tech that, that had a similar problem. And so to me, that's one of the biggest problems that we as techies face. There is such a common tendency for tax to think that they know everything and nothing ever changes. And I literally have some people and I don't even try to, to sell my, my training to these people, but I, I can spot them right off. The ones who are doing the same things today. They were doing 10 years ago, the same way with the same tools. And those are people I don't want in my workshop because they're not doing their clients a good service. And I forget how I got well, off. Why wouldn't tangent.
0: you want them in your workshop? Because, don't you want them to do it the right way? I do, and they're not going to. Uh,
1: they're, they're going to come into it with a mindset, I already know everything. And my boss said i got to go to this workshop. And so then got if I they, they keep screwing up, that's going to make me look bad. Because I said, well, I went through Ken Dwight's class. I've got the piece of paper right here that says so. So I don't need that.
0: All right. So, so I asked you, how do we know a computer is infected? Um, when the the antivirus doesn't detect anything and and you gave me a non-answer because you, your answer was oh you'll learn that in the workshop well, okay well, we're not I, in the I, workshop I, we're in, yeah,
1: yeah no we're I, in I, I, I apologize <laughs> I, I did not mean to to phrase it that way uh, what what I gave was the beginning of an answer uh, because uh, depending on the particular type of, of mal- malware that you're dealing with, uh, we talk about these these different registry keys, and uh, the the persistence mechanism, which in the old days, the way that malware got there in, there in the first place was with an entry in the run keys. And the run keys are what you see in MS config or the startup tab uh, of task manager and then later operating systems. And so I take you right into those run keys, where they are, what they look like, what they do, and and symptoms that are typical of malware. We go into uh the different you know, parts of the registry like just the win log-on subkey under H local machine. There are at least a dozen different infection vectors I've seen in there. And so I talk about what to look for there, including some that look very normal and and and, and straightforward. You'd kind of just not even give them a second thought. As an example, without having reg added open in front of me and showing you uh, exact indications, let's say that uh, in the run keys. And I'll just assume that you and, and the typical MSP tech watching this uh, knows what a run key is. But that uh, is a program that's going to start up automatically at startup time, either at Windows start or when that user logs on. And the format is on the right-hand side of the screen, you've got the name of that entry, then the data type, then the content. And all of the entries in the run keys are going to be some type of string data, either reg s z or reg multi string or reg uh, uh, variable string. And what you may see is one or more entry that doesn't have anything in the content. It's got the name and reg underscore s z and then nothing beyond that. And so uh, the average sec, well, That's not doing anything. It's not going to hurt me. So I just go on, look somewhere else. Where in fact, if they double clicked on that entry, they might see that it's got about 100 spaces and then the executable name. So it's farther out so it won't show up in regedit uh, when you're just looking at at that run key. But when you look at that particular entry, you'll see that, as you know, within the registry, uh, there's it doesn't matter how many spaces there are one space or a hundred or a uh, thousand. It, it just, it looks to see if there's anything more in that line. And if it's way beyond where the bad guy knows that the tech is likely to have his, his reg edit screen end, then it'll look like there's nothing out there. So that could be in a run key uh, on a similar thing on the wind log on. Uh, there's several entries, one in particular that has gone away with windows eight and 10 but it could still be there that normally doesn't have anything in that right-hand side. The criminals could put that back in there and put something in the right-hand side, an executable that happens to be far enough out that it's not visible in that reg view. So those are a couple of examples of the type of things that when you know enough to know what to look for, uh, you pick up on them. And even those are fairly unsophisticated in the overall scheme of things because they are uh, string data. They're, they're easy to, to spot if you know what you're looking for. And some of them are much more subtle, much more deeply hidden. So uh, there again, I, I've got examples. And uh, uh, now to clarify one thing I said, but I mentioned the 300 plus keys that we look at. We don't actually look at each one of those keys, but I give reference to them and screenshots and talk in general terms. Like there are, Uh, locations of default files. They come in six different places in the registry. And each one of those places has anywhere from 10 or 12 to as many as a couple of dozen file locations, any of which could be compromised by the criminals to take you somewhere other than the normal default location. So we don't go through the mechanism of looking at, at, you know, all 96 of those or however many there may happen to be on a machine. But Uh, that's one of the things that my automated program that I talked about a minute ago does look for. But where we really concentrate the effort is in the run keys, when log on and certain other common areas that are frequently used by malware, whether it's ransomware uh, or even pups or rogues for that matter.
0: All right. So, so let's say we've, we've looked at our registry keys and we've, Kind of determined. All right, this looks like we might have an issue, so I just delete the registry key, and the problem solved. Right?
1: <laughs> if you're real lucky. <laughs> One of the things that I talk about in the methodology is uh, going through, and and if this is the the tedious part, uh, and that is going into Task Manager or Process Explorer and looking at every process that's running and look for things. That jump out at you as being a malicious or more likely a suspicious process. Because right now, if I look at a typical Windows 10 machine, there are a couple of hundred processes running. And even though I have seriously looked at and been inside of thousands of machines over the years, I will not claim that there's one of them that I could tell you absolutely certainly what each one of those was. But I can tell you what the common patterns are and some names that I would recognize or patterns of names. And so uh, point is, you go through the list, you see one that that you think might be malicious. What I recommend you do at that point is kill it and see what happens. When you kill that process, one of two things is going to happen. A, it might kill windows. If it does, then that lets you know it is a required process for that program for, for Windows to run on that machine right now. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not malware, because a common infection vector is to take explore.exe, infect it, and rename it uh, to load.exe. That's a, an old, old piece of malware called SurCam that I first saw in Windows 95. So it's been around that long, but it's still out there today occasionally. But point is, SurCam uh, infects and renames uh, explore.exe to load.exe. Well, if you kill load.exe, you've killed Windows. And so uh, if you rename it or if you go back into uh, where it was in the registry and put explore.exe, there is no explore.exe anymore. It's been renamed and infected. So that's an example of kind of how you have to go through the steps. But But in most cases when you kill that suspicious process, it's not going to kill Windows. Everything's going to keep running normally, at least to all appearances. Uh, so the next thing you want to look for is, does it come back on its own? And that's a pretty good red flag. Uh, again, back to the persistence mechanism. What most of the sophisticated malware these days will do is have a way of coming back even after the tech or the user has shut down, restarted, killed it, deleted it, or whatever. And that's commonly done through what's known as a buddy process. And in simplest terms, the buddy process means that out of those 200 processes, there's one that's the actual malware. There's another one that is the buddy. The buddy is not malware. The buddy has one purpose. It is to see if that main malware process has been shut down, terminated, killed, deleted. And if it has, to restart it, reinstall it if necessary, Redownload it if necessary. And that's a pretty common technique that's been around for quite a few years now. So the point is, if you kill a process and Windows seems to be running normally, nothing seems to have changed, but within a minute or even a few seconds, that process gets restarted, pretty good indication that there's a buddy process running. So there's a separate procedure to deal with that situation.
0: All right. And then I would suspect that some of the best malware authors are are writing it to be like omnidirectional the the buddy process checks the virus is running the virus checks that the buddy process is running that way if you try and kill the buddy process first then kill the virus program it'll bring back the buddy process before you can kill the virus program I have not
1: seen that uh, be the case yet. And that's why in the the actual methodology I teach to identify the buddy process, kill it first, and then kill the malware process and get rid of both of them. I've never seen them come back.
0: Well, for you virus writers who watch this, now you know what you need to do.
1: (laughs) Well, there is another twist on it as well. And it's something that's not nearly as common, but I have seen three-way buddy processes. So there's a another process monitoring the buddy process to see if it gets killed. <laughs> so I've only seen that a I've time gotta, or two. But, I've got to uh, say,
0: I've um I've had plenty of viruses with uh with buddy processes. Never had a three-way.
1: I I think I've seen two of them over the years. So it's it's definitely not something you see a lot of.
0: It's like a unicorn.
1: Almost. But one thing I preach from the very beginning is you know, some of the stuff in the workbook, for instance, I haven't seen in years, but you can never count on anything being gone forever. You know, some of the infection vectors that were in the autoexec exec bad and config sys files, I still have them in my workbook because somebody some days would like, say, Hey, I bet they wouldn't think to look here. You know, so you know, nothing, you can never be sure that any any technique or approach or infection vector is gone for good. Any of them could come back anytime.
0: All right. So we've we've identified a registry key. We've identified a process and maybe a buddy process or two or three or however many. Um, So we delete the key, We delete the virus executable. We delete the buddy process or processes. Problem solved now, right? Uh,
1: Yes and no. In fact, uh, let me just – I want to refer to something and uh, let's see – Okay, and I'm, I'm looking at, at some of my workbook, and I want to quote from some of it here just to give you. Uh,
0: so to clarify, are you quoting yourself? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, but sometimes what I say in, in print is more eloquently worded and, and more carefully refined than, uh, uh, than what I'd say off the top of my head. What I'm looking for is when I get into the you know, traditional malware. Uh, okay, well, of course, I'm not finding what I was looking for. But I talk about the stages of. Uh, yeah, let me go back, and I made it a point to have this at my fingertips. OK, I've got the four major cat. Oh, there we go. There we go. It was, it was above. I talked about the four stages of malware removal. And this is before I get into the four categories, actually. Uh, Detection, making the initial determination as to whether or not the device is actually infected. Identification, and that is not necessarily the exact you know, name of the of the malware, but more categorizing it, figuring out uh, which one of these categories it falls into. Then neutralization. Neutralization is stopping it from doing what it's doing. And that's, that's how far we've gotten right now. That's the third part, the third stage of malware removal. And then the fourth stage is removal, uh, where once it's actually neutralized, not doing anything, then uh, remove it. Now, the first part of that will be the actual executable. Delete it or rename it or do something else with it so that it won't run anymore. But the reality is that in most cases, uh, there are a lot of other associated files, whether they're DLLs or VXDs or 386s or additional EXEs, other subfolders that sort of thing. There's a lot of other stuff that comes along with it. And so the, the final stage in dealing with traditional malware is to run a scan uh, to get rid of all that, that left behind detritus, for lack of a better term. And it's not really hurting anything, but you don't really want it to be cluttering up the, the system, if that matter, making it easier for the bad guys to, to possibly resuscitate just those, those one or two files that were deleted by your manual process. So, so long way to get to where I, I was going.
0: No, it's okay. So I, I've got to say, um, I still think that, you know, do, going through the malware remediation and, and, and doing the incident response and cleaning it up and having it go away, I, I think that this is good for us as technical people to understand but I still don't know if this is the right way to go about things with our current security climate. Um, Ken, I I just, I, I don't trust the computer once it's had uh, some type of, of malware infection. Um, You got to think like, I've got, I've got some people that have sent me some private messages, so I'm not going to name names. Um, one gentleman said, you know, in the age of independent computers, this methodology made sense. Nowadays, unless it's critical infrastructure, there's no reason to waste more than an hour troubleshooting a virus issue. All of my services, you know, 365, user setup, uh, it's all automated. 90% of the end user software is automatically installed. Only things that are not automatically installed is software that's typically over a gig in size. Um Additionally, it's it's hard to fully trust a software system with a known compromise in today's day and age. If the virus was able to get past a modern AV, it is highly likely that it, uh, it there will be lingering trace issues or other time-released items that are dormant. Uh, can it be trusted in production? No. So that that takes what I'm trying to say and, and very eloquently just puts it out there for people. I... I just don't know that, that doing this type of stuff as an MSP makes a whole lot of sense. Um, You know, doing this for a, for a consumer computer, you know, for, for grandma's computer with the virus or, you know, your, your cousin who just wants you to help them out in a bind. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But you know, we're, if we're talking about the, the law firm or, or your CPA firm that are, that are a great client of yours paying you thousands of dollars a month for you to make sure that their computers and, and network and everything are safe. I just don't think this is the way that we should be doing it these days.
1: Well, there's several pieces to that that I'd like to parse and, and, and to, uh, talk about individually. For one, I am in complete agreement that it does not make sense to spend and I'll say more than two hours on on going through this procedure or cleanup. But again, the average time that it takes to go through this whole procedure is well less than an hour. 40-50 minutes is the average and there are plenty of cases where in 5 or 10 minutes uh, you can get the computer completely clean, functional, and uh, uh, and usable from that point on. So, but yes, if you're talking about uh, the time it takes to go through a traditional malware cleanup, uh, once you get past two hours, uh, you're eating it. Uh, the client's not going to pay you more than two hours of, of time for, for any type of malware cleanup. But the other thing that I think is maybe even more important than that is that let's say you wipe and reload. Once you've done that, that computer is back in the same condition it was in before it got infected successfully that last time around. So unless you figure figured out uh, what kind of IOC there was, what kind of indicator, what what kind of foothold they got in there, then you're just back at the same starting point, waiting for the same hap- same thing to happen again. So, point is, it requires for you to keep that machine from getting infected again. You got to understand how it happened, where the infection was, and and going beyond that, especially in the case of ransomware. Well, that's a whole different subject, but uh, you, you got to figure out, you know how it got there and what you can do to keep it from happening again. And whatever you had before didn't work. It got infected. It got encrypted or hacked or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, you've got some temporary relief by re-imaging it to what it was yesterday or last week or or whatever, but you haven't really solved the problem.
0: Well, and, and when I would re-image, I would re-image to like not a, backed up version of the computer, I would have like, here's a generic image for XYZ client for this department, that department, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's got, you know, windows, the software they need, you know, that type of stuff. And it's otherwise it doesn't have data. It doesn't have a user profile. It is just a base image. Um, and, and what I, what my argument is it's not about the time. You know, like I, it doesn't matter if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, two hours, 10 hours. It's, we can't trust the machine. It's been infected. And now can we confidently say, I am 100% certain that this machine does not have a virus on it anymore. After I go through um, all the steps, even if I take your workshop not not just watch this video let's say i take your workshop i go through it and then I, I run a computer through all of those steps can i say 100% that that computer doesn't have anything hiding lurking in the shadows i think as you know no.
1: there's no 100% but i will say that it would be be very unlikely that there's any remaining trace uh, after you, uh, you go through the, the whole methodology that that I teach. Now, again, yeah. uh, the, the scenario you described, uh, I would not argue against that. If, if you're in a situation where you have a generic image that everybody in a large organization has the same thing and all this different is their data, their user profile, that sort of thing, then I don't disagree that wiping and reloading in that situation uh, is not a bad approach Uh, and it may be the quickest and that's kind of the standard in large organizations but again with the small msps and and the the small shops the mom and pops the home users rarely have that or a lot of cases they may think they do and when it gets right down to it they really don't so if they have that where, where everything is is that cut and dry that straightforward then sure wipe and reload but my experience has been that the, the vast majority of MSPs, uh, smaller ones anyway, don't provide that level of, of backup capability and, and recoverability.
0: Sorry, I just realized how dry my mouth is. Um, all right, so tell me this. If, if I were to take your course, am I going to like figure out how this virus got onto the computer because I don't know that the problem is ever truly solved unless we know how it got there. Was it emailed to them? Was it, you know, user manipulation Um, or, or was it something that they downloaded some crap they shouldn't have maybe from BitTorrent or whatever, or they're going to websites that are not really work appropriate or whatever. Right. Like, How did it get there? How do we know it's not going to come back?
1: Well, the short answer is we don't. And again, the workshop is not as much about prevention and uh, all the stuff. And people hopefully already know about the danger in email attachments and clicking on links and and that sort of thing. Uh, Unless you are in an enterprise type environment or a large hardware, software configuration where you have a lot of logs that you could trace all this stuff back. That's usually just kind of nice-to-know stuff, but if you can you know, recognize where the actual indicator of compromise is and keep it from coming back, then you've solved the problem. So uh, I'm not, not trying to downplay the importance of the reverse engineering, the forensics, the disassembling, and, and that sort of thing. But that's where you burn up a lot of time that is important if you're talking about an enterprise situation or a uh, uh, an organization that has cyber insurance, and they've got to figure out all that and justify the claim or deny it or or that sort of thing. But it's, it's typically not as big a concern for the people that I'm working with as solving the problem. Now in the course of solving a problem, then uh, you see where the IOC was. And if something like that comes back again, then you've got a better timeline on, well, what's happened since we got it back here. Did you, you, know, you go look through their emails or look through their downloads folder or, or, or whatever logs they have on their firewalls or their server, or the, there are places you can do some fairly rudimentary uh, backtracking to see where they might have gotten the infection. If it's RDP, then that's pretty easy to spot too. So you know, once you know so kind of what the options are, then you know, the process of elimination will help.
0: Uh, and I and I can appreciate that, but I I think that we we right now are and, and I just I just want to be clear, like I I like can I You know, I'm not I'm not here trying to like crap all over Ken, okay, guys. So this is this is us hopefully having a kind of friendly debate. Yeah. I'm and and I'm coming from the this is a concern, right? This is this is an ongoing concern, security. And it's going to just continue to get worse as the you know, weeks, months, years go on, because you just gotta look at, you know, where were things three, four or five years ago. Where are things now? You know, we we started getting um, weird malware and then we started getting ransomware. And now we're, you know, now we're in something completely different. Like now, I don't, I mean, it's still like ransomware, but it's, it's evolved. Like now they're, now they're being strategic about who they're going after in some ways where they're like, Hey, let's go after a pipeline or NIH or, or whatever else. Right. Whereas before they'd just be like, yeah, let's get a Bitcoin from somebody back when it was worth 600 bucks. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk about what what i think i'm disagreeing with right now so so you said that the people that that you're working with really don't care so much about like how it got there they just care about fixing the problem but if we don't know how it got there it's just going to keep happening which for a break fix shop where you know they've got that $95 virus special that's like awesome because now like every month they're going to have Jim bring in his computer because he keeps clicking on the same porn ads and he's got to get the virus removed again. But but that doesn't really fix the the overall problem. It just fixes the tiny problem that Jim has created. What we need to do is we need to understand how that virus got there because we need to understand what we need to train the user to be doing differently. You know, we this this ultimately is usually a user-caused issue. Am I right or am I wrong? Historically,
1: you're right. Uh, in today's environment, not as right as you were a few years ago.
0: Sure, but... But you know, if we're talking about the type of viruses that that you're talking about removing, I mean, if if somebody gets ransomware, un, unless they've got a backup or or pay for the encryption key, they're effed, right? You're not remediating remediating that and decrypting the data magically. You don't have a magic wand in your no. toolkit to you. No. okay. So they're still screwed. Um they need to understand how they got ransomed. They need to understand you know what steps they took that they shouldn't have. and And this really needs to be more about us understanding where this came from so that way now we can provide the real value, and that is educating them to not do it again. Yes, we should be able to clean and and to be clear, at that point, it doesn't matter. Nuke and pave, uh, image, um, have have the remediation training, uh, do do that stuff. Like it doesn't matter. Like, un, unless we fix the real problem, which usually is the user, whether they are in places that they shouldn't be or click something that they shouldn't have, we we're never going to truly truly solve this. And again, if if we're if we're looking at the break fix shop and going, "Hey, I'm I'm happy just making my $95 for the virus removal." Great. More power to you. Take his training and and be even more efficient at removing viruses. So now you can have, you know, 10 of these systems on the bench and get them all done in an hour, same day turnaround, right? But um for the MSP, for the for the company that is trying to Provide value services to businesses, regardless of the size of the business, even if it's the mom and pop uh, coffee shop or whatever down the road, right? They need to know how to keep their business safe, not just I removed the virus. I'm pretty sure QuickBooks won't get a, uh, sent over the wire to somebody else so people can look at your books and get bank account information, whatever else you have in there?
1: Well, the infection vectors haven't really changed over the years. Uh, There's still only a few ways to get infected in the first place. And a lot of it does come down to user training, whether it's the the, the phishing emails, the infected links, the the different things that the user can be trained to look for and not do. Uh, In addition to that, you've got the infected websites. You have websites that have malvertising in them that the user really can't do much about. And so there you have to rely on, on more automated tools to detect them or pick up on them, block them somehow. Uh, you have RDP and you have lateral movement across a network. So that's pretty much it in terms of how a machine got infected in the first place. But what they all have in common is they're going to end up in one of those registry keys or some indicator of compromise that once you recognize and pick up on, if it's in the run key, you can uh, keep anything from being changed in the run key. Uh, and and so again, once you understand the mechanism and, and how it all plays out, then without having to know exactly what email from whom and what link and what attachment or whatever, uh, you don't have to know those details. You can, can block that avenue.
0: Got it. Um, I think that you know we we kind of touched on the fact that this isn't you know what what your course does is it doesn't really talk about the prevention it talks about the remediation and I think um, uh, you need to use like the modern security solutions like you know whether that's you know you installing Huntress and Sentinel One or Sophos what whatever you're going to use, right? You're going to have something on those computers and you might even have some type of, uh, EDR MTR type solution service, whatever you might have a sock SIM where you're collecting logs and you're, you're really being able to look and see everything that's happening on that machine to, to kind of be able to pinpoint, um, how how this this infection got there, um, but if you're using these modern security solutions to to know all this stuff, and you've already got it in place, and you see something happening, you're probably not going to be using the the virus doctor's methodology to clean these things up. Because, I mean, let's be honest: if if you're watching every file modification and every registry change as they happen when reviewing the logs. I mean, it's, it's basically just showing you everything as it happens. Right.
1: Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah.
0: Tens that? of thousands of incidents. Uh, yeah. Well, but and, that's, and, what and I, what I, I, that's what I, I know stock stock is tools. designed for, man.
1: Well, I know there are some tools out there that will help go through those logs and, and pick out what really matters. But I hear so many complaints about how completely overwhelming it is to try to pick out anything from from logs, especially when there are a lot of of endpoints involved. And again, that's beyond what I normally deal with. So I'm not speaking from firsthand experience, just from uh, anecdotal things I've heard.
0: And and you might be hearing that from, um, you know, small computer repair shops that are trying to get into the MSP game or, you know, the, the old dogs that don't want to learn new tricks or or whatever, right? But the the simple facts, man. Right, right now security is huge. I don't know if you saw, but last night the President just signed an executive order. We now have like regulation that you know if if somebody get. I think uh, I have not read it. I'm going to actually read it, and I want to talk about it with somebody on here. But uh, from what it looks like, we're actually going to be uh, required to report breaches even if our contracts with our clients state uh, you know confidentiality and, and all that type of stuff like
1: well I so, have not
0: seen or heard that but uh,
1: uh, well we'll we'll deal with it if it becomes law or whatever
0: well it it just got I believe it already got signed yesterday executive order let me look here. Uh, president signs executive order charting new course to improve the nation's cybersecurity and protect federal government networks. Um and it it mentions I'm I'm looking at the statement right now on the White House.gov website. It mentions by name solar winds, Microsoft Exchange, and the Colonial Pipeline Incident. So yeah, it's gonna remove barriers to threat information sharing between government and the private sector modernize and implement stronger cybersecurity standards in the federal government, improve software supply chain security, establish a cybersecurity safety review board, create a standard playbook for responding to cyber incidents, improve detection of cybersecurity incidents on federal government networks, improve investigative and remediation capabilities. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of right up your alley right there. A lot of that, um, you heard they're talking a lot about detection, investigation, and remediation. So, I strongly recommend you look into that, Ken, because you know we're we're like 24 hours out from this happening. You you want to be at the forefront of this, so that way the virus doctor can continue to educate uh, new and and former graduates.
1: Um, I will look into it. Thank you.
0: I, I also think that regulation, more regulation than this is coming. Yeah. And well, I, because of all that, I, I think that you're, you're going to probably need to update, make some big updates uh, or maybe even just make an, a whole new training course, because I think there's value in what you're doing, Ken. There truly is. Um, but I I think that I think that pushing to just clean up a virus, with the way everything works these days, is is a concern. I think it's scary. Um, I I think that this this should be less. Let's clean it up and more. Let's let's see if it's something's really here. Let's let's go virus hunting and let's see what's gotten past our antivirus our av let's let's teach the msps let's empower them so that way they know let's let's monitor these registry keys in their rmm tool you know like write write some scripts or whatever that people can run in whatever rmm they're using whether it's uh, synchro or Caseo or connectwise whatever right and and now you're you're selling Uh, value based on your years of of knowledge and experience, but it's updated to something that today's MSP, today's managed service provider um, can really take, harness, use, and deliver real value to their clients. But that's just my opinion, man.
1: Well, and it's a valuable opinion. One thing I'll just mention is that what uh, the president signed is clearly Directed at the large organizations, the, uh, the the ones that you hear about in the newspapers that uh, or uh, online news sources that have suffered these breaches, uh, and there's a separate issue of pending regulation or coming regulation for MSPs. My my suspicion is what what he addressed. Uh, he probably doesn't even know what an MSP is. Uh, I think everything that that you just quoted there is based on the end user organization uh, exposure and responsibilities and some of those MSPs might be involved.
0: This is all directed at government, uh, mostly on a federal level, not even at the state, region, local, whatever. um, And, and at the enterprise, but it all trickles down. Yeah. You know, so, so, whatever they put into place, um, unless they put stipulations like they like they had to do with, you know, like the PPP loan, like you know, Chase Bank and and all these huge enterprise companies were able to get their PPP loans. Yeah, and then and then when they re- rolled it out a, a second or third or whatever time, they were like, "All right, well, clearly we did this wrong the first time, and now you you can't have more than X dollars and." revenue or whatever they did right so unless they say like this only applies to businesses with x dollars in revenue or higher like it may apply to everyone it might just be a blanket new cybersecurity rules deal with it yeah and and until we read the order i i'm it's all speculation right yeah um and in fact i will probably when when we're done with this I'm going to reach out to Dave Sobel and say, hey, executive order, when can I get you on? We need to talk about this.
1: Yeah, and as you know, Dave is a good source for information like that and about how MSPs mm-hmm. are, are being potentially regulated and, and uh, uh, licensed and taxed and everything else.
0: Yes. Ken, um, I know that, it, you know, it feels like I probably beat you up a lot here. Nah. Um, I. I love you, man. I, I truly wish the best for you and, and what you're doing, which is why I gave you like, just take that idea and run with it, man. I'm not looking for royalties or anything like, <laughs> like seriously, if you think that there's going to be value in you offering that type of service, do it. Because I'm all about doing whatever it takes to uh, help MSPs, not not just like the little break-fix shops, but but actual MSPs mm-hmm. too. Um, with with improving their cybersecurity knowledge, and again knowing all of this stuff about the um, the registry and and all the stuff that you're training, uh, everything that leads up into all right, let's go fix the problem in the labs. All of that is amazing information that I think everybody needs. Um, but it, as as soon as we get into all right, I've remediated it, remediated it, and now we're done. That—that's the part that scares me, and that's the part that I think maybe we just look into a little bit further and and make sure that this is truly the this the case. Because well, I'm, and, I just don't trust anything in today's day yeah. age, man. I don't even trust my mom,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it's mutual. <laughs> Uh, uh, (laughs) And one thing that I I realize is I've I've kind of downplayed, well, not kind of, I have downplayed the prevention aspect. Uh, What I generally say is that starting with uh, you're infected now, what, you know, you kind of back into seeing how this stuff happened. And so it's, I, I don't lead with that, but when you go through, seeing all the IOCs and all the different techniques and that sort of thing, then it it kind of, you automatically understand, well, if I had if the client had so-and-so, whether it's hardware, software, procedure, training, or whatever, uh, then uh, the result would be prevention, but it's not, not what I emphasize. So I probably need to change that emphasis.
0: Got it. Well, Ken, Seriously, thank you for coming on here so we could we could have this discussion. I think that even the the little bits that I got from you with just knowing that like, yeah, there's there's you know a few hundred places in the registry that I always know to look and this is what this type of key means and Winlogon, log on and, and things like that. Like I, I learned something today, man. So so truly well, thank good. you.
1: Well um, before we before we go, I, I do have uh, one thing that I, I kind of alluded to, but uh I'm ready to to show you firsthand. Let me go back to uh, I've got a particular page for my workbook that I'd like to share. So if I go ahead and just click the share button, uh, yes, sir. Okay, and uh, well, oh, hang we on. That's what I'm looking for.
0: Okay. And just so you guys know, like we we had started the share earlier, but you've probably noticed Ken's video keeps getting like super, you know, blurry and almost looks out of focus. Where he's it seems like he's having some uh, bandwidth issues today. So we we killed the the remote stream or the remote screen share, and that kind of fixed a lot of his issues that he was running into.
1: Okay, so, so I've mentioned for you. Okay, Are you seeing my screen now? Yep. Okay. Uh, I've mentioned several times that the actual process start to finish uh, takes less than an hour and it could be a good bit less. This is a, a quick uh, quick and dirty first step that could uh, identify and get rid of malware issues in less than five minutes. And I know that uh, you and, and uh, all the MSPs that are watching this, Recognize process explorer. Uh, you may not recognize some of the way I have mine configured, but in a fairly recent update, I say fairly recent, in the last few years, Mark has added the option to have a column here for virus total. And so I've added that uh, along with a little bit of customization of the actual columns here. But the point is, this will look at every process and submit it to virus total and see what its analysis is. And I sort on that column so that uh, these first three are the only ones that are non-zero. In other words, out of the 73 or 74 different sites that that it's testing or that's asking about these processes, all the rest of these get a green light. They're not showing as malicious. And so anything that is uh, shown as malicious will be at the top of the list. In this case, it's three false positives. But the point is, uh, anything that really is malware especially if it's been around for more than a few days, it's not going to be one or two or three out of 72 or 73. It's going to be 13 or 27 or 58 or some much bigger number. So point is,
0: once you I'm have... I'm curious because I don't think I've used Process Explorer in a long time, so I just don't remember. What is the difference between the blue and red highlighted caps? well is one like this is a Windows built-in app and the yeah, others yeah. aren't or...
1: In general terms, the blue indicates that it's a, uh, well, the, the pink background indicates that it's a supervisor state. It's part of the operating system or, or running as an extension to the operating system. And, and the blue is application state. So generally, when you sort by process, uh, well, the default, you see mostly the, the pinks at the beginning and mostly the blues at the end. And those aren't absolute definitions. There's some that are blue that are actually uh, working as part of the operating system. And there are actually over 10 different color codes used. Uh, in fact, there, there's one that's used to help you identify a buddy process. So a lot of good stuff. He's made a lot of improvements over the years, even after he sold out to Microsoft. In fact, it was actually updated three times last year. So uh, it, it's it's still you know, it's not getting updated and improved as much or as frequently as it was in the early days, but there's still some good stuff. So uh, again, just right. at a glance, if, if you sort by the virus total column and look for anything non-zero, then if everything shows up false positives like this or zeros, then you can be about 95% sure that that machine is not infected unless it's a root kit or something in the hardware and in the firmware. So, that's where we get into the, the not hundred percent area. But uh, uh, if I just want to see a quick and dirty first glance at where problems might be, uh, that's something I'll frequently do and anybody can do for
0: free. All right. Well, Ken, seriously, thank you for being here. Um, if you guys are interested in checking out uh, no longer virus remediation training it is malware incident response training. Um, you can go to thevirusdoc.com, and he's got that like right at the, right near the top, center blue box. Uh, you can click read more, and you can get signed up to do that. Um, is uh, the online remote whatever version that you do is is that um, like something that's scheduled or is that pre-recorded? How do you do that?
1: None of them are pre-recorded. Uh, they're all done live. And I normally schedule three workshops per month. And uh, they're usually on Tuesday and Wednesday. In fact, almost always on Tuesday and Wednesday. And four hours each session. Uh, One of them I schedule for in-person here in my office in Houston. The other two are online at different times of day. And so I schedule one from noon to four each day, central time, which is good for uh, most of North America and the UK or or Europe. Uh, Then I also schedule one for... 6 to 10 in the evening, which is good for people in the U.S. that have a day job or don't want to take prime time away. You know, Most of us are night owls anyway. And uh, so that's why I first started scheduling those. Then once I did, that's when the Aussies started signing up. Because, of course, 6 o'clock in the evening here is 9 o'clock tomorrow morning down under. So uh, that that's the general schedule. So in a normal you – know, when you look at that page on the website, uh, there normally will be three or four scheduled workshops over a period of a month. And I also nice. do private workshops. If, if uh, uh, Typically, if it's an MSP with five or more techs they need to train, then that would be more appropriate for a private workshop, which could be scheduled based on their availability and preferences.
0: Very cool. Well, well Ken, um, thanks so much for being here. Um, for those of you watching live, thank you so much for doing so if you're listening online later on the podcast. Oh, kind of looks like he has something else. Hi, Yeah, <laughs> I, I
1: have sent i had actually sent you a link to my uh, uh, Anatomy of a Ransomware Attack video. Do you have that?
0: I do. I actually, um, I popped that into the uh, Rocket MSP community. So uh, for those of you wondering what I'm talking about, if you go to rocketmsp.io uh, right now, you can get signed up. Um, for the community free of charge and it's, it's basically a, a private forum. It's, it's not on a Facebook group or a LinkedIn group or whatever. It's, it's on you know my site uh, and we don't have to worry about the Zuck, uh, you know, removing stuff or, or whatever, just, just play nice. That's all I ask. So yeah, if you go to the rocket MSP community, um, you, you'll get access to that, that video, the uh, anatomy of a virus attack? A ransomware attack. Ransomware attack. Um, but that's, uh, I believe, is that something that you normally let people watch? Is that is that like a public no. one? Okay. Uh,
1: it is normally for my alumni only, but I did make that available to, to your people. Uh, it was recorded in November, and uh, here we are in May, and so... Uh, there's some information that's a little bit out of date in terms of the number of ransomware families and, and ransom amounts and stuff like that, but the concepts haven't changed.
0: Well, thank you very much. So yeah, check out the, the rocket MSP community, which again, just go to rocket MSP.io and uh, you can get signed up right there for the community. It is free to be in the community and it's a, a really cool forum for uh, MSPs to talk, vendors can join. So feel free to pop in there yourself, Ken. It's totally cool. You. Just, you know, don't don't go in there selling stuff to people. Just be helpful. <laughs>
1: yeah. All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Steve. It's been fun.
0: My pleasure. It's It's been great having you on. I, I always enjoy talking to you, Ken.
1: Thank you. I appreciate what you do. Thank you.
0: All right, everybody. Uh, for those of you watching live, thank you so much um, for all your, your comments and feedback. And for those of you listening later, um, feel free to head over to anchor.fm/rocketmsp, and there, there's a, a button that, that says like leave a message, and uh, click there. I would love for you to send me a message. It's an audio message, which uh, is is extra weird, right, guys? Uh, but if you if you click on that, um, you can leave me a message with questions for the guests that I have coming up. Um, maybe you want to leave a, a question uh, for Rob with one mob, where we're going to talk about using video to increase engagement with prospects and clients, or you want to leave one for big leaf networks where we're going to talk about uh, some more SD WAN type stuff. So um, yeah, just, just take a look at the rocket website. You'll be able to see the upcoming schedule of events. Um, You can register for the newsletter and, you know, have that sent over to you. Uh, There's all kinds of of great information on that website. Uh, All right. I've I've talked enough. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, I will catch you all at the next episode.